Let us pray. Lord God, we know that you have spoken to us, that you have spoken truthfully and authoritatively in the person of your Son. And we know that you are present with us right now by your Spirit. We ask that by your Spirit, you would help us to understand these words of Jesus and that you would use them to transform us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite writers is a Catholic novelist by the name of Flannery O'Connor. I don't remember the first time I came across her writings. It was probably in some English anthology in high school or something. But ever since I first started reading her stories, I've been hooked. Now, if you've never read her, if you've never had the pleasure of reading any of Flannery O'Connor's short stories, I should probably warn you that they are kind of weird and disturbing. I like the story Greenleaf. It's all about this bull that gets loose and wanders into a woman's yard and ends up goring the woman to death. And somehow that's supposed to symbolize her redemption. Or the story Good Country People, which is about this young atheist who's really bright intellectual, but she's also a kind of angry and bitter woman and she treats her mother terribly. And in the story, she ends up getting charmed by this traveling Bible salesman. And the story ends, this is the ending, the story ends with him stealing her prosthetic leg and leaving her stranded in a barn. And that's the end. Like I said, these stories are weird, but there's a reason for that. One time Flannery O'Connor wrote an essay and she was trying to talk about why it is that she writes the kind of stories she does. And here's what she said. The novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him. And his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. And he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across. When you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax a little. But when you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing you shout. And for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. So that's why she wrote the kind of story she did. It was to shock and offend people, to upset them. Upset them enough that they would actually be forced to recognize the distortions in their lives. Her stories were her way of shouting at people who were nearly deaf. And Flannery O'Connor, she wasn't the first one to use this kind of strategy. If anything, she was just following after the example of her Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. I remember when Jesus went around in his earthly ministry teaching crowds, Matthew tells us that he almost always taught them in parables, these short stories that he used. And these stories were meant to shock and offend the people who heard them. There were stories that had stars leading characters like arrogant sons and crooked judges and scheming employees. And don't forget that one where a Samaritan, some 
filthy, good-for-nothing, idolatrous Samaritan of all people ends up as the hero of the story. Yes, Jesus was a master storyteller. And in their original context, the shock value of his stories would rival anything that Flannery O'Connor ever wrote. But now we've become so familiar with these stories. We've heard them so many times. Now we've stopped being shocked by them. Sure, they might puzzle us sometimes, but they don't offend us anymore. At least not usually. I do think that there are still a couple parable, parables that have the power to offend. And there's maybe no better example than the one that we just read from Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 20. And the story itself is pretty straightforward. There's this wealthy landowner and he goes out into the village and he sees these day laborers standing around. And so he says, hey, go work in my vineyard for the day and I'll pay you a denarius, which is great news for them, you know, because they're standing around. They don't have any work to do. And a denarius, that's a pretty good wage for a day's work. And then a couple hours later, he does the same thing. He goes back in the village and he sees some more people standing around. And so he hires them too. And then he just keeps doing the same thing every two or three hours going back into the village and whoever's standing around, he picks them up. And then, then comes to the end of the day, about five o'clock or so, and it's time to get paid. And you got to remember at this point that, you know, some of these people have been out there working for 12 hours and some of them just showed up an hour ago. But what does the landowner do? He goes and pays them all the same thing. One denarius. Now, if you're anything like me, and I'm just going to assume you are, then you probably feel a little offended and a little annoyed with this story at this point. And you probably sympathize with the complaint of those early morning laborers. You can just imagine what's going through their head. Are you serious? These Johnny-come-latelys, they just came out here for one hour and you're paying them the same as us who've been sweating and clipping and hauling baskets all day long? How is that fair? But somehow, somehow in the twisted logic of this story, it's the day laborers, those early morning laborers, they're the ones in the wrong. And the landowner is the one in the right. According to Jesus, there's something wrong with these workers' attitude. Something that's putting them at odds with the kingdom of God. The question is what? Or maybe the most obvious answer is the one given by the fourth century church father, John Chrysostom. He says that these laborers, what their real problem is, is that they are people of envy. And he has a point. After all, what are these laborers, what are these workers upset about? What is the source of their discontent? What's making them grumble? When they were first hired early in the morning, they were happy to work for a denarius. And that's exactly what they were paid. The reason that they are upset now has nothing to do with the money they're getting paid. It has everything to do with the fact that they see that other people have worked less and are still being well compensated. In other words, those laborers, they're not upset because they're getting a raw deal. They're upset because they think somebody else is getting a better deal. Now envy, envy is one of the oldest and deadliest sins. It was envy after all, that inspired Joseph's brothers to take him and throw him in a pit and then sell him as a slave. 
And it was envy that drove King Saul into kind of murderous rage and made him try to kill young David again and again. It was envy that was lurking in the heart of Cain when he met his brother Abel in a field. Envy is sometimes called the silent killer, which is a pretty good name for it. Envy, envy is the hidden resentment of another person's success. It's the unhappiness that you and I feel when we compare ourselves to those around us. It's our secret desire, not just to want what they have, their house, their success, their charm, but to see their good fortune taken away from them. And that's why comparison is such a dangerous thing. Teddy Roosevelt once called comparison the thief of joy. And he's right. When Rachel and I were in Boston, we were living with three little kids in this tiny two-bedroom apartment that was half underground. And there were no windows in any of the bedrooms. And there was no yard. And so things were pretty cramped. But even though it was tight quarters, we felt content because it seemed kind of natural to us. Everybody else we knew also lived in small little urban apartments just like us. But then we moved here to Plano. I remember, I remember when we first got here, driving up and seeing our new rental home. And it just felt so big and grand. You know, it had these three really nice bedrooms. There were windows in every room. And we even had our own private yard. But something has happened since then. Our house doesn't feel quite so grand as it used to. And now I catch myself looking around and thinking, these bedrooms are kind of small though. And we really need a bigger yard. And I'm not the only one. Recently, uh, my daughter was talking to Rachel and she said, mommy, you remember how big our house felt when we first moved here? The implication is pretty clear. Well, it doesn't really feel like that anymore. But what has changed? Not the house, the house that we moved into, this house that seems so spacious and luxurious, it's exactly the same. No, the only thing that changed was our standard for comparison. When our standard for comparison was all the little apartments that we and our friends lived in, then our house felt really wonderful. But now we've been here for a while and our standard for comparison has changed and we don't feel as grateful as we once did. And don't get me wrong, even if I did get a bigger house, even if I lived in some mansion, that wouldn't really fix the problem. That wouldn't really protect me from the feelings of envy because envy is not about what you have. Envy is about comparison. And there is always somebody out there, somebody with a bigger house and a better job and more success and a happier looking family. Always somebody who's cleverer than you and who's better looking than you are and who's more well-liked than you are. And that's, that's exactly what happened to these laborers in the vineyard. Because at first they were thrilled to be earning a denarius for a day's work. But then once they saw what other people are getting, well, then all of a sudden a denarius just didn't seem so good anymore because their happiness was based on comparison. And it was comparison that stole their joy. But envy though, envy isn't the only thing that we see in their response. Something else is going on here. 
something else that's putting them at odds with the ways of the kingdom. They aren't just suffering from a spirit of envy. They're also suffering from a spirit of entitlement. You can see that if you pay attention to this exchange they have with the landowner. In verse 12, here's where they make their complaint. And they say, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And notice how he responds. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last workers as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? You see, the workers, they're seeing all of this through this framework of merit. They worked hard for their money. They earned it. But whereas the workers are thinking in terms of merit, the landowner reminds them that their whole relationship has been based on grace. They had no right to be given work. He chose to give it to them. And if he chooses to be gracious toward others, they have no right to complain. Now, you would think this point would have been obvious to Jesus's Jewish audience. After all, this is kind of the heart of the whole message of the Bible, isn't it? That you and I, we humans, we don't deserve to be here. We didn't merit our own creation. We just kind of showed up in the world one day and we started breathing, breathing this air that was provided for us with these lungs that God knit together, waving around these little chubby arms and legs that we did nothing to earn. And that's the difference between us and God. As St. Irenaeus liked to say, God makes, we are made. God is the source of his own life. But you and I, we are not. We have been given life from another. And not just life. Every good thing we have. Every success we've ever experienced it. At the end of the day, we didn't merit any of these. They aren't owed to us. They are all a gift from God. And the people of Israel were prone to forget this, especially when things were going well for them. And that's why Moses in Deuteronomy chapter eight, as they're about to enter the promised land, it's why Moses warns them about their attitude when they come into this land of prosperity and success. And he says, beware, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. And we too, we're also quick to forget that all we have is simply a result of the grace of God. What do you think that the apostle Paul, when he writes these letters to these early Christians in the New Testament, he's constantly telling them again and again, the same thing about how you're saved by grace and not by works. Why does, why does Paul feel the need to, to ask the Corinthians this question? What do you have that you did not receive? Is it because he's never mentioned this fact to them? Never told them that everything that they have is a gift from God? No, it's because he knows that they're quick to forget that. They're quick to start taking credit for their own success. Quick to, quick to start feeling a sense of entitlement, like they have a right to the gifts of God. I, it is amazing to me how skilled we are at turning the gifts of God 
into the just desserts of our own hard work. I read this book recently by this economist named Robert Frank, and it was interesting. So for, for years, he researched what role does luck, what he calls luck, we would call it grace, but what role does luck play in the lives of successful people? And his research led him to two conclusions. Number one, luck plays an enormously influential role in the lives of successful people. And number two, successful people hate to be told that. In fact, he said, he found that the more successful you are, the more resistant you tend to be that the idea that luck had anything to do with your success. And why is that? I think it's pretty simple. We just don't like the idea that the goods and successes of our lives are a gift. We'd much rather attribute our prosperity to our own hard work, to think we deserve it, that it's ours by right. Now, don't get me wrong. When sometimes, you know, when we gather together, like here at church on Sunday, we're very good at confessing our need for grace, you know, and, and singing about how our salvation is purely a gift and we didn't deserve it. But then on Monday morning, we all return to the world of work and we all start looking at the things we own and thinking about them. And then somehow our mind switches. We take a different attitude, one a little bit more like the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, who looked around at his kingdom and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar, you might remember when Nebuchadnezzar said this in the book of Daniel, he was immediately punished for blasphemy. But Nebuchadnezzar's attitude isn't unique. He's just giving voice to a common tendency that afflicts us all. This tendency to treat God's gifts as our own accomplishments. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why God instituted tithe as one of the main components of worship. Sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking that tithing is a matter of charity. You know, it's, it's us giving, we don't owe it to God, but we like to give a good, generous donation to help God out. But God is pretty clear throughout the Bible that he does not need our charity. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God is the one who has rightful claim to every dime in our bank accounts, every dollar of equity in our homes. So why then does he ask his people to give 10% of what they own as an act of worship? Well, it's because he knows how prone we are to forget that everything we have has come to us purely as gift. He knows how easy it is for us to start thinking in terms of merit and entitlement. And so he instituted the tithe as a part of worship to remind us that we live by grace and not by achievement. And when we tithe, when we give a portion of our goods to God, all we're doing is acknowledging the truth of that fact, acknowledging who it is that truly has rightful claim to all that we own, who it is that is the true source of all good and perfect things we've ever experienced. The Jews in Jesus' day, they should have known all this, but they too often forgot. And that's why he told them this story. It was to shock them, to offend them, to startle them, to force them to recognize how their attitudes of envy and entitlement were an affront to his kingdom. But of course, Jesus' teaching about the kingdom, it's not just meant to offend. 
It's also meant to invite us, invite us to a new way of living and being in the world. To be not just people who understand something about Jesus' teaching about the kingdom, but people who actually live as citizens of that kingdom. The question is, how do we do this? How do you and I resist this temptation that is so common toward envy and entitlement? How do we start living as citizens of a kingdom of grace? Well, there are a lot of ways to answer that question, but maybe the best place to begin is to do what Christians are supposed to always be doing, to pray. You know, there's this wonderful prayer at the end of morning and evening prayer in our Anglican prayer book. It's called the Great Thanksgiving. And it begins by acknowledging that we are unworthy and giving thanks to God for our, ble- for our creation, our preservation, for all the blessings of this life, for the redemption of the world, for the means of grace, for the hope of glory. And then it goes on to offer this petition. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts, we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives. I encourage you to pray that prayer. Pray it twice a day. Begin and end your day by giving thanks and by asking God to give you such an awareness of his mercies, his gifts, that with a truly thankful heart, you may show forth his praise. And as you pray, pay attention to how God's spirit uses that prayer to put to death the envy and entitlement in your heart and to make you alive to a world filled with wonder and grace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.